1: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Maryland sports fans. There's only one sportsbook in the great state of Maryland with over 50 years experience booking bets and supporting customers. Betfred Sportsbook at Long Shots is now open and is the only sportsbook in Frederick offering cash betting on football, basketball, world soccer, and more. Visit the Betfred Sportsbook at I-270 and MD-85 in Frederick. Right next to Longshots Off-Track Betting. Go to Betfredsports.com for more information and your chance to win exclusive merchandise must be 21 or older play responsibly for help call 1-800-GAMBLER
2: Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Audio Judo. I'm Kyle.
3: And I'm Matthew. Hello. We are Audio Judo. We are. Your podcast of music discovery. Oh, yes. Music discovery used to come so many places when I was young. Mixtapes from friends, MTV, back when they used to play music videos, music magazines like Rolling Stone and Cream. But for the most part, that phenomenon has faded away into an all-out assault of media, videos, reality shows, Mm. and the like. And while there is more music than there has ever been available at your fingertips for almost no money, it has become increasingly difficult to find things worth listening to. Uh, We hope to help you with that. We take albums, old and new, review them, critique them, hopefully give you reasons to go check them out, whether that be an album you forgot about from the 70s or something brand new that piques your interest. We are here for you. Uh, we are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast Network, the yes, premier music podcast network, just chock full of entertaining and thought-provoking programs about my favorite subject, music. So, it's really your favorite subject? It is. Wow. Yeah. So uh, check out some of those on pantheonpodcasts.com. Yes, please. This week, we head back to the 1980s, the decade of keyboard and big hair and mammoth arena hits oh yeah we are talking about the 1985 release songs from the big chair by the english pop rock band tears for fears
2: how does this album exist what do you mean this album this one album has three of of the the era defining songs on it yep. from like 1980 to 1990 and maybe i would say three of the genre defining uh, uh uh songs for for like uh, a new wave uh rock sort of sound yeah how does that happen how does that happen on one album well we're gonna talk about it like honestly before this i don't think i had ever listened to this album from beginning to end and i never realized really
3: yeah i never realized how packed this was oh it's a perfect storm it's nuts this is uh so this is their second release yes uh, while the band continues to play and occasionally record new material, this album remains their most commercially successful album to date. Uh, Tears for Fears was formed in Bath, England in 1981 by Kurt Smith and Roland Orlothable.
2: Orthobel?
3: I think it is Or-Or-Thable. Orthobel. His father was Spanish, and I'm pretty sure that's how you pronounce so the you, you, Z you, sound in Spanish names.
2: You did just uh, introduce this to me earlier. I did. And, uh, I fully agree with it, but I've been calling calling him Orzabal for for years so I feel like
3: a dick now. No, No, it makes sense. I did too. <laughs> I did too until like I said uh, like we were discussing earlier, I, uh, there are a couple of professional golfers that have the uh the Z or the Z for our mm-hmm. uh, uh British uh listeners. Uh have the uh, the uh, the the Z in that position and that's always how they say it on the broadcasts the the like Jimenez or 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 Lathable. So his Orsonville. name is Orthobl. Orthobl. So I'm guessing a little bit, but I'm going with it. Uh, anyway, they had originally formed a band called Graduate. Yes. In the 70s. And
2: they were mildly successful with that. Yeah. They uh, they released an album
3: called Acting
2: My Age, uh, and then ins- a single called uh, Elvis Should Play Ska, referring to uh, Elvis Costello. Elvis Costello, Not yeah. Elvis Presley. That they felt Better just choice. shy of hitting the UK top 100. But apparently it did really well in uh, Switzerland and Spain. Really? Yeah. Obviously two... Uh, Huge musical markets. Big markets. Switzerland. Well, Spain,
3: because Orthobel is Spanish. But they switched to New Wave uh, Mm. synthesizer stuff in the early 80s, and they changed their name to go with the style switch. The band's original name after the sound switch was History of Headaches, (laughs) uh, but was soon switched to Tears for Fears. Um, (laughs) That name is deeply rooted in the psychological treatment called Primal Therapy or primal scream therapy, first suggested and utilized by American psychologist Arthur Janov. Yeah, who became
2: super famous for treating uh, John Lennon.
3: Correct. So primal therapy uh, involved descending into or feeling and experiencing long repressed childhood trauma and pain, and typically involved long sessions of screaming and yelling in order to uh, more or less expel those thoughts. Uh, mother, why?! Exactly. Ah! <laughs> oh, are you okay? You're getting, I'm sorry, I had you, some... Uh, you're getting something
2: out. I yeah. had to get something out.
3: Was that repressed? Not that. I just had to get the... Was that uh, repressed? No, I don't think so. I think it was fully on the surface. Okay, the whole good. Time. It's supposed to be very cathartic. Did, did you feel it? I did. I felt very... Uh, it was a good
2: release. Good.
3: I feel very calmed now. You seem refreshed. I feel at peace with my mother now. Mm. It became it became quite popular in the 1970s when the two biggest proponents that you could possibly want, as you just named, began to speak of its benefits, uh, Lennon and Ono. So Tears for Fears would not only adopt that philosophy of their name, but their first album, The Hurting, dealt with that topic head on. Yes. Uh, the relationship that Orthobel had with his father was very, as he put it, unorthodox. Hmm. Uh, his father had a nervous breakdown When uh, Roland was a child and had been bedridden for years, and Orthobel sought out ways to deal with his childhood experiences, and primal therapy seemed to be something that worked for him. So that first album was loaded with, as one reviewer put it, angst-ridden adolescence and pained (laughs) romanticism. I've said it before, and I will say it again. I'm pretty sure these reviewers were paid by the word or the letter. (laughs) How many big-ass words... Can we get into one review?
2: They definitely had uh, a very advanced English degree. That's for sure.
3: So yes, that album was fueled by their anguish and shitty childhoods. But isn't most really good, effective art born out of pain in the first place?
2: I would say that it definitely is. I do think it's pretty funny, too, that uh, in a a later interview in 2004 on VH1 UK, uh, Orthoball and Smith Both said that when they finally met Janoff in the mid-1980s, they were disillusioned to find that he had become quite Hollywood, quote-unquote, and wanted the band to write music for him.
3: Oh, of course Specifically, I'm sorry,
2: a musical for him, not music. Oh, like a rock opera or something? Like Tommy? I feel like we've gone down this road. They didn't expand on it, but it would have been fascinating. I wish they would have done it.
3: (laughs) (laughs) That would have been fun. Total sellout, but would have been worth it. So aren't the best visual artists of the world- you know painters writers saddled with the deepest emotional traumas yes so why do musicians get a bad rap when they write a, write songs about their trauma so so basically
2: the conclusion that we're coming to here is that uh, if you want your children to be successful musicians traumatize them
3: please just don't. Uh, just, just really just, just mess just, them up just beat them and, and do all kinds of horrible stuff to them be like, like you'll thank
2: me when it's platinum <laughs> <laughs> I'm oh, kidding! Please don't abuse your You Should children. get that
3: embroidered on a pillow or something. That's You'll, good advice.
2: T-shirt that just says "You'll thank me." You'll thank me when thank it's black. And then a hand <laughs> moving back to slap
3: someone.
4: That's great. Uh,
3: so it's it's not all bleak anyway. There are songs that have catchy, bright melodies. It's not all dark. It's you know it's yeah. shit on something on the record. Shit on the songwriting because it isn't quite that mature yet. But they're getting there. You know. Either way. That record, for all its apparent shortcomings, The Hurting is what I'm talking about, would go yes. number one in the UK and eventually go platinum. It peaked at number 73 on the US charts, setting the table for their follow, up which would take the US and the world by storm. Songs from the Big Chair was released on February 25th, 1985. Uh, the first single, Mother's Talk, had actually been released the previous August. Still true to form, though. The title of the record refers to the character from the nineteen seventy-six movie Sybil. Yes. Uh it was about a woman who suffered from multiple personality disorder, one of which would manifest itself when she sat in her therapist's big chair. Which
2: is a great movie and a great book, by the way, if you've never seen or read the
3: book. The the uh, book is fantastic. Yes, it is. The the movie It's a made for TV 1976, movie. It's nineteen seventy six, and it's a made for TV movie. It's is, still pretty good though. Well yes, the let content. Me rephr-
2: let me rephrase that.
3: It is a good adap- adaptation oh. of the
2: book of a book to a movie. Ah. It's not necessarily an entertaining movie. No. It's not a wonderful movie, but it's a good adaptation of a book to a movie.
3: Mm. So the band was determined to become a more commercially accessible band at this point, which seems like a strange point of view when your previous album was number one in the UK. Yeah. But feeling that the hurting was too dark, they envisioned a more quote unquote friendly record. Now, we'll go back in time a little bit. When we originally planned to do this episode, I wanted to do the next album, The Seeds of Love, not this album. And when I suggested it, I was met with great disdain from show producer Randy. <laughs> uh, I started to, produ- uh, to uh, research both records. And what I realized uh, was that this record, Songs from the Big Chair, is everything that that record is not. While The Hurting is a new wave synth bath and the seeds of love is a distinctly jazzy and soulful record this record serves to bridge the gap between those two worlds Mm. and i know you were talking about how did this how did this record come to be and i think there it is the the rest of this record lies in this beautiful pop landscape and they're caught in the in-between between between what they were and didn't want to be anymore what they're eventually trying to be, and they ended up writing these pop songs with some jazz elements, some new wave elements, and some pop elements, and that ended up being the record they needed to make. It's the perfect Tears for Fears record. While the Seeds of Love suffered from too many ideas and and the bloated late 1980s productions that had become commonplace by then, you know, throw millions of dollars at these huge productions with choirs and orchestras and all kinds of shit. This record was leaner, it was smarter, and more appealing to a cross-section of fans, which could be reached in multiple styles. You're not just appealing to the jazz or the pop or the new wave, you kind of have all three worlds colliding.
2: There's a fascinating
3: blend there, too. Right. So Hmm. do you have any of the uh, vital uh, statistics on the record? so many vital statistics
2: for this. Peaked at number one on the U.S. Billboard 200 and number two on the U.K. albums chart. I stupidly did not look up what was number one, and I should have, but I didn't, so you can go look it up on your own. Triple platinum in the in the U.K., five times platinum in the U.S., that is five million copies sold in the U.S. Uh, that's I had big. one. That's big. It was originally titled The Working Hour, which uh, makes sense. Yep. There was also a uh, mostly instrumental track called The Big Chair, which includes dialogue samples from the film. Uh, That we were talking about earlier, called Sybil, uh, which was released as a B-side of Shout in 1984. However, it was not included on the album, but was available on the special limited edition cassette version, which was was released in the UK in 1985. Also, if you can find it, just uh, last year, in February 2020, there was an episode of BBC's uh, Classic Albums documentary series, which I believe we brought up during the Steely Dan episode. Still going. First of all, BBC Classic Album Series still going. The Steely Dan episode was from the late '90s. This one happened in 2020, so 20 years plus later. Apparently, it is a f- about this album,
3: mm-hmm.
2: Uh, and apparently, it is a fantastic episode. I can't find it
3: anywhere. I haven't seen it. It doesn't exist. I've heard about it, but I haven't seen it.
2: You can't watch it on the BBC iPlayer. You can't watch it, and nobody's it's, leaked it online, it's not on YouTube anywhere. Uh, it, it was driving me nuts. I could find two like two-minute clips on the BBC's website about it, and that's it. And I was like, I want to see this while I'm researching this album, and I couldn't find it.
3: I found some transcriptions of oh. some parts, mm-hmm. which I read and utilized, but I, like you, I could not find any video uh, version of of that episode.
2: Yeah, but it's got uh, all new ep- – uh, it's the same – what am I trying to say here? I don't know. All of the episodes are sort of the same. They do like an introduction. They do some interviews, and they do a breakdown almost track by track of the entire album. And a lot of times, it's very fascinating because not only do they talk to the musicians who played on the album, they talk to the engineers and the people who mixed the album. Yeah, and they break it down, and they're like, uh, "Oh, this is this is
3: how we mix the lyrics, and this is how we did the and the solo stuff. Like this is a great yes. this is a great sax line, and they cut out all the music except and so you for can the sax just line. Just hear the sax.
2: It's Awesome. And the two little short clips that are online are worth a watch. So I'll try to remember to put them in the show notes. Yeah. If not, you can go to the BBC's website and search for uh, BBC uh classic albums mm-hmm. and it's on that. It's on there. But uh well worth it. Well worth 5 minutes of your time,
3: I think. So yeah. the cover. Oh, yeah. Unless you got more. Well, I was just going to say,
2: no, you know what?
3: Let's go to the cover. Jump to the cover. Yep.
2: It's this iconic black and white photograph of uh Ortha
3: Ball and Smith taken by Timothy O'Sullivan. See, this proved to be a bit of a challenge for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I couldn't find anything out about the cover art. Uh, it's, it's a black and white picture of yeah. of Roland and Kurt uh, in fancy sweaters looking all broody and complicated. You know, they're trying to be more commercial and accessible. The first, the hurting, had like a kid traumatized in a corner yeah, looking all like emotional and, and crappy. And I think it was on purpose, moving like, let's show the artist. Yeah. That's fine. So when I tried to look up Tim O'Sullivan... All the, you got was the Civil War photographer, yeah, huh? I got, uh, I went to research him. I said, forgotten American photographer Timothy O'Sullivan died in 1882. In yeah. I'm like, mm, I don't think that's the same guy. That's not the right guy. So. Uh, unless,
2: what? unless Smith and Orthoball are vampires who've Ooh, been alive for a very
3: long time. They could be. Those are nice and sweaters.
2: Also, they were dressing like the 1980s in the 1880s. But <laughs> I digress. So go, please continue. I don't think that's the case.
3: Uh, as an album cover, you know. It does the job. I know who it is. I guess that'll have to do. I think the last episode or the one before, we talked about the website, Album Cover Hall of Fame. Mm -hmm. As an aside here, I think that website could be really great. However, if you don't know who the artist is, it is exceptionally difficult to find anything. Yes. So if you just search Tears for Fears, you get so many options that only point you in a general direction that you will be there all day. Yes. It can be useful. I think it could be more useful. You end up getting like. 74 articles, and it doesn't take you directly to the article when you click on it. It just takes you to the section that that article is in, and it happens to be like M through Z. Yeah. I'm like, but I don't know who it is. So now I got to like thumb through M through Z to see if I could figure out and discern who the hell I'm looking for. It suffers from
2: the thing that old websites used to do where they had their own search thing built in and it sucked. <laughs> no offense to the website, but, uh, your search thing sucks, uh, integrate with Google and it'll be a lot better. Right. I uh, think that could be an
3: sorry, extremely but- useful website. Yeah. It just needs a little, uh, you know, polishing.
2: You have to have some time and you've got to poke around for a while to Whoa. get what you want. Out you got
3: to poke around, huh?
2: you got to poke around, find the right spot, <laughs> poke it a little harder. Whoa. You'll get in there.
3: So, because I think it is really important to hear how these songs work together on this record, uh, because there's so many conflicting styles, I'm going to do something we've never done on this show. Oh my god! I'm going to play clips from all of the songs. What every single song on the record? Wait a minute, we're going to get so, a clip from what? Two
2: weeks ago, you told me that we were going to play clips from every song. I've been practicing my singing voice for all of these songs. Good. Did you mean you were going to play recorded clips? No, of all these no, songs? you're gonna
3: you're gonna have to sing along. Oh, thank God.
2: Okay, you're good. gonna
3: sing along. I'm ready to all the songs. I'm ready. Are we ready to do? Uh, we're ready to do a little uh, track by track here. Yes. Okay. Let's do a track by track. Shout, Randy. Go. We one, all go oh, ahead. You know, no, 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 i no, say, no, please this go. is
2: one of the defining songs
3: of the 1980s. It absolutely is. It,
2: it, it 100% is. There's no way
3: around it. So, we often talk on this show about the importance of album pacing and how songs get placed on the records. Uh, you know, on so many records that I've listened to over the last year or so, I've noticed how many artists want to start their records off with this slow building that leads into the first song, this ominous chords, you know and all kinds of pads and strings and weird stuff. And here comes something important. You better pay attention. This album is the exact opposite of that. Oh, yeah. Strips away all that pretense, just starts right at the chorus. No verse first, first, right to the chorus. <laughs> Opens up the album with one of the biggest songs of their career. And it just you just lay it out there like, here you go. Here it is. <laughs> this was actually the second single from the record. It went number four in the UK. Of course, hit number one in the U.S., staying there for three weeks. It is regarded, as it should be, as one of the biggest songs of the 1980s and would become Tears for Fear's signature moment. While the first single that was released, Mother's Talk, would lean heavily into the sound of the last album, like we said, heavy synths, quite electronic, Yeah, this song would definitely show their hand on the sound of this record. Big power chords, hooks... Of singable choruses, even a guitar solo, which was pretty much absent on the first record. Uh, this song was written by Orthobel, and he has he had this to say about it. He said, "The song was written in my front room on just a small synthesizer and a drum machine. Initially, I only had the chorus, which was very repetitive, like a mantra. I, I played it to Ian Stanley, our keyboardist, and Chris Hughes. Chris Hughes, the producer, I saw it as a good album track, but they were convinced it would be a hit around." The world. They were right. Yeah. Most people assume that this is a song that continues in their primal scream motif from The Hurting, but according to Smith and orthobel this is actually a protest song. Uh, it was technically released in 1984, even though this album came out in 1985, the single was released in 84, and the Cold War was in high gear. People were pissed, wondering if the Orwell novel of the same name was actually being lived- In 1984. Apparently, more specifically, Roland wrote it as a song to express his dissatisfaction that the US had just installed nuclear weapons on British soil. Yeah. So he was a little pissed. So, heightening the fear during an already fragile time.
2: But he he wanted to get people going. He wanted to get people out there protesting and saying, hey, we don't want this to turn into a hot war.
3: Right. Let your voices be heard. Right.
2: Speak out. Talk. You know, speak up, speak out. Get the message out there that you don't want this to become
3: an actual war. That you want peace, basically. Shout. Shout it out. Shout about it. Uh, Like all the other hits on this record, uh, this song benefited from unbelievable heavy rotation on MTV. Yes. So as one in this room who actually lived through this time, it was on all the time. This was a time when MTV was a service for people who wanted to listen to new music. Tears for Fears would not have ever been played on the radio at that time until it had success on MTV. Yeah, It wasn't being played on rock radio, and pop wouldn't play New Wave until it got popular. It wouldn't cause it to be popular. It was the other way around. So MTV was really the first stop at that stage, and it drove the bus. Obviously, that's changed. Like the meme... I saw the other day, MTV turned forty this year. Thanks for twelve years of music television.
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: it sounds about right.
3: So I thought about putting this next dis- uh, discussion point later in the show, but I figured it would be we'd talk about it now. Oh, the sound, the drums, oh, big, huge, cavernous. Well, this album was recorded at a place called the Wool Hall in Beckington, England. Ooh, uh, it was a giant recording hall from the sixteenth century. It was just a hall at first, it wasn't a recording hall in the sixteenth century. But then the band bought it, Tears for Fears bought it in the mid eighties and turned it into a recording studio. Oh. It provided that signature sound that makes this record sound so big. So over the next 20 years, it would be the recording site for Van Morrison, who purchased it for a time. Annie Lennox, The Pretenders, The Sisters of Mercy, and the Smiths recorded their final record, Strange Ways Here We Come, at that location. Huh. An album we have talked about before. Yes. Uh, In 2016, it was sold again and turned into residential units, just another victim of the digital recording age. Right? Obviously, there are many cover versions of this song, uh, as there are for most giant hits, uh, most notably Disturbed in an interesting one, as well as uh, Concrete Blonde, and there are a dizzying array of other cover versions to track down. Yes. Do you have more on this one?
2: Uh, A couple more things. Uh, Chris Hughes, the producer, playing drums on this one. Yeah. Fascinating that the engineer stepped in to play drums, but sure. Uh and then uh Sandy McLeeland on backing vocals. Or oh, the, the high those couldn't, high parts. Couldn't find much about them. I don't know, honestly, don't know male or female. I uh I don't know. Very uh very hidden. And the name was apparently common enough that it's not something that you can just track down. So don't know. So uh there's the,
3: there's a lot of fantastic musicians on this record, like most of the time, but there are also some anonymous ones. Yeah. That... Kind of we'll weird.
2: Mention, so, uh, Sandy McLeland, if you're out there listening to this podcast, like you obviously
3: would be, Obviously. please Why contact us
2: and uh, let us know. Uh, uh, you can get a hold of us stories. on
3: Twitter or you can send a message to info at audiojuda.com. Yes. However,
2: you want to get in touch with us. Let us know.
3: Let us know. You're still out there, and you know what? Maybe we'll talk to you and uh, figure out what your experience recording uh, songs from the Big Chair and yeah. one of the giant hits of 1980s was like.
2: One thing that, uh, one other thing I do need to mention about this song uh, every time I hear it,
3: do you want to shout?
2: i know i want to oh. you know when he says these are the things that i can do without come on i no, just these are the things that i can do without oh. i start listing things that i can do without
3: oh how so long I've, is that list
2: now it's very long i i've not been keeping track of the whole list
3: see if i had started doing that in 1985 oh it'd be a very long we'd list. have a pretty impressive list because i can pretty much list. do without most things <laughs> it'd
2: be a very long list
3: so what's your list like? Have you got any?
2: I don't. I didn't, oh, you write didn't list any down. things. No, because it's different every time, and I don't remember it from time to time.
3: Do you? You're like I, I should could do start without, writing it down. I could do without that. I could
2: do without traffic.
3: I could do without.
2: I could do without commuting to and from work every day. It would be nice
3: if it was just like right you next door. Son of a bitch! I'll do without this. I
2: could do without. I could do without
3: smog. That's stupid. <laughs> smog is stupid. Smog is stupid. The working hour. The working hour. The original uh, name. Of the record. Yes. Uh,
2: the sexy saxophone intro, Woo-wee. which uh, you don't care for saxophone in most pop music. I'm no. Curious to know what you think about this. Well,
3: so, yeah, we'll get there. So, <laughs> this song was partially written by most of the band. Apparently, the drum pattern was first written by uh, Manny Elias, uh, the drummer of the record, other than the first track. Mm-hmm. He gave the pattern to Roland, who got some chords from Keyboardist Ian Stanley. Roland wrote the words and gave it life, which is great. I love hearing these communal writing activities. You know, they're writing as a band, they're playing as a band. I think that's great. What is evident here is where they're headed with the sound. There's almost like this seesaw mentality on this record as it moves back and forth between pop and jazz and new wave. And as we talk about endlessly on this program, the sax. Yeah. This song would be so much better if that saxophone was replaced with an electric guitar. (laughs) Hold on, just think about that for a second. Mm. So the guitar could carry that line so much more effectively without the whiny, squelchy sound. (laughs) And a guitar would date the song less and would probably avoid making it sound like the soundtrack to a not-great 80s movie or Hill Street Blues or some shit like that. It is funny, I
2: wrote down this could seriously be the theme song to a 1980s rom-com.
3: Oh my god he
2: could very easily this this is the 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 prequel the prequel to romancing the stone
3: so not jewel of the nile which no. was the sequel
2: yeah
3: it's, it's the prequel uh, loving the rock or some yeah. no well that's a dwayne johnson uh, oh vehicle boy. something else i will i will point out that the sax in this song is played by two gentlemen mm. uh the first is mel collins another world-class musician he, he played with the Stones, Roger Waters, Dire Straits, Eric Clapton. He's also played with a bunch of uh, progressive groups, including Camel, Alan Parsons Project, and King Crimson. Uh, he is probably best known, uh, or at least his work is best known, for one of uh, Kyle's very favorite songs, mm. Private Dancer by Tina Turner. I'm your private dancer, dance for money. I do love that song. I know you do. The other sax player is Will Gregory, who has played with Peter Gabriel, The Cure, Portishead, and the like. So, let me reiterate. Hmm. I hold no ill will for the sax or sax players. Okay, They are tremendous musicians. I just feel like it sounds lighter than I would like it to. The guitar would have added some hair to the song, you know? (laughs) Would have made it a little heavier? A little bit. When the song right. gets away from the heavy sax feel, I love it. To me, it's, it's very much like the flute in rock music. Mm. Like, I can handle it in certain places, but if you start to dress up rock and roll with a flute, it gets a little squirrely. It's all right. If I hear a sax in a song, I point and say 80s or, or late 70s, it's immediately dated and i love it where it's at like i believe it belongs in jazz
4: mm-hmm. and
3: and i think it's wonderful and i will sit and listen to it in jazz but in pop and rock it always feels like an outlier to me okay. it always feels a little bit uncomfortable a
2: little misplaced a little
3: bit so in this song though mm. there is this really great key change that makes the song really brilliant and it, uh, it's right here actually About that with a guitar. Just a little bit of distortion, just a tick. All right, that might be
2: okay with a guitar.
3: Yeah, just that a, might be okay with a the guitar. Just a tick of distortion, just a little bit. But that but that change, that that chord change, that key change is so rooted in jazz, but works really well in a jazz slash pop song. Yeah. So lyrically, this is about Kurt and Roland uh, reflecting their lack of joy about the business side of the music industry.
2: It had become work for them.
3: Right. And I think like most young artists, they hit the point of being jaded and wanted to take a swipe at the biz. I think they all get to that point, you know? And also, there's a misheard line for me. Uh, At the end of the song, he keeps singing, find out what is this fear all about. Until two weeks ago, I thought he was saying, buy now. Like, buy now. It's one of the best. I feel like this is the best vocal performance on the record. It's so strong. I know it makes little difference, but reading it and being able to hear it in contest. Context, it clears some things up lyrically for yeah. me. So, uh, One last thing, the percussion on this song, uh, to continue the line of impressive players, is yeah. done by uh, Jerry Marotta. Oh, dude. Yeah, do you look up his resume?
2: Peter Gabriel, <laughs> Orleans, Hollow Notes, Indigo Girls, Stevie Nicks, and basically every other major act from the 80s and
3: 90s. Yeah, pretty much. Basically
2: yeah. just everybody this is dude played with at least once. He's with everybody. Right? Uh, only other uh, musician on this, uh, Andy Davis on Grand Piano couldn't find anything about him another mystery
3: just another mystery guy Another
2: weird mystery artist on this he's probably
3: walking about walking outside the wool hall and i'm like right come on in here you just C- press you, these keys can you play the piano it's really, it's really loud, loud. Just inside go, Bong. but uh so that's the working hour no, no, let's to, uh let's take a quick break it's a good idea uh we'll be right back Yes. Have you ever uh, felt like you wanted to try something new? Like oh boy. like cooking or basket weaving? Yes. But you didn't know where to start? Mm, that's like, I a, do usually have trouble starting. Like you needed a roadmap or a guide? Yeah. A lot of people feel like that about jazz music. Ah. So, you know, they don't know where to start. It seems too complex. Do I start with the uh, fusion or big band or the legends? I, I know I feel like that personally. It is a very
2: deep and, and rich subject with uh, a lot of places
3: you could start. All right. So, well... We here at Audio Judo have something mm-hmm. to fix all that. And with the help of our guest host and jazz spirit guide, Chris, we're going to uh, try and help you navigate the treacherous waters of listening to jazz. Uh, we will be premiering a new spin off podcast series called Audio Judo Does Jazz in late April. Mm-hmm. It's, it's going to be fun, interesting. I'm looking forward to it. We're also recording that bad boy exclusively. With the new podcaster kit from AKG? Yes. Chris doesn't have any experience in podcasting, so we wanted to make it as easy as possible for the person who doesn't have studio equipment or editing headphones or anything like that. So this podcaster's kit is perfect. He gets a cool mic, set of headphones, software, bingo, blango, he's podcasting. Yeah. All that means is more competition for us, so we have to bring our A-game because everyone is going to be podcasting soon.
2: The only thing I didn't like about it is uh, since Chris is using it, I can't steal it.
3: No, you can't steal That's it. That's
2: unfortunate, so... Uh... Well, it's a shame
3: we had to send it to Chris. Yeah. He's, he's going to make the most of it. Yeah. Like I said, look for that series in late April. Yes. Because we are super jazzed about it. <laughs> oh, hey, oh. Dad
2: wordplay. Everybody wants to rule the world, Matthew.
3: You know that's Everybody. true. Buddy. This is a song that pretty much set the world on fire for Tears for Fear. Yes. <laughs> a song composed by. Or Orthobel, mm-hmm. keyboardist Ian Stanley and producer Chris Hughes, would become their biggest hit and make the band Household Names. Went number one in Canada, New mm-hmm. Zealand, and the U.S., staying there for two weeks. It also reached number two on the U.K. chart, kept off the top by USA for Africa's We Are the World. Wow. <laughs> <laughs>
4: we are the uh, <laughs> They'll get, they'll, yeah, uh, fart
3: noise. Okay. The, uh, another one of the defining songs of the 1980s, though. Absolutely. The, the video would garner almost constant air on yeah. MTV, help to cement the images that are always in my head when I hear this song. It always reminds me of driving down a desert highway with a convertible top down. Why? Because those are the images that are actually in the music video. Right? I'd say it did its job getting stuck in my brain for 36 years
2: has this uh, awesome uh, like you were saying earlier how it's sort of this transition album this has a fun like jazz shuffle beat to it it's got the old and, shuffle and it sounds totally different than anything else on
3: this album it does it does it, it so it seems to be present in just about every movie or tv show at one point or another i did a search to see how many things it's actually appeared in hmm. at last count it was 106 wow uh, I will not list them, as that would take forever, but take yes. my word for it. It's in a lot of stuff. Wow. Uh, my favorite use of this song is at the very end of Real Genius with Val Kilmer. I love that movie.
2: And is this after he
3: blew up the house with popcorn? Yeah, this a is laser? the song that plays over the end credits. Nice. It's perfect. So Roland and Kurt didn't even want to release this song, actually. Uh, they considered it, quote, too lightweight for public consumption.
2: Chris Hughes, the co-writer and album producer, uh, also said that quote as a piece of recording history the song is bland as hell <laughs> <laughs> that's uh one of the defining songs of
3: the 1980s bland as hell it's it's not too light it's not too dark it's perfect like you mentioned the, the shuffle rhythm it sounds like this It's so good. It's so good. I do not feel happy listening to that song, too. You can't not feel happy listening to the song. And I think one of the big
2: things behind it is that weird driving beat. Uh, Chris Hughes uh, is credited, credited as the MIDI programming for this on the Drumulator.
3: Oh, the Drumulator. The
2: Drumulator. Uh, the Emu Drumulator, uh, which was a sample-based drum machine by Emu Systems. Emu was introduced in 1983 at a price of U.S. $995. Whoa! Fairly expensive at the time. Pretty sure I can get a
3: plug-in for no cost right now. Right?
2: I'm sure it's (laughs) free to download on your iPhone. You can just play with it. The drumulator was Emu's attempt at creating a rhythm machine like the Lin LM1.
3: Yeah, the Lin drum uh, drum machine. That was also
2: better and cheaper than the Lin LM1.
3: Oh.
2: It was used a lot in early 1980s synth pop and Italian disco productions
3: oh so probably uh giorgio Moroder. yes oh a lot probably used the hell and, out and of that we
2: thing. have got to do an episode on him on the set sometime in the future we did a we
3: touched on him during the daft punk episode yes
2: but we got to come back around to him because he's a fascinating individual boop.
3: just touched uh, on him uh,
2: but uh, in 1984 digidrums another company released drums released special eproms which are little plug-in chips for the drumulator which included the rock drums that was used in this song and also, most famously, in the
3: Beastie Groove by the Beastie Boys yeah. by Rick Rubin. You uh, said digidrums and drumulator in the same sentence. I so I'm did. Just totally like distracted. Right Woo! Digidrums, drumulator.
2: <laughs> Man, that barley wine is kicking my ass. Right? Uh, let's keep going. <laughs> Woo! Uh, the drumulator was also used in a, on an album uh, by the the punk band Big Black, uh, and the album was uh, Songs, Songs About, about fucking. fucking. I yeah. had that record. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Uh, I only mentioned it, it's not a great record, I don't think. It isn't, uh, I had it, it was terrible. And I only mentioned it because they wanted to bring up an album called Songs About Fucking. I had that record! <laughs> that's awesome!
5: <laughs> I didn't
2: even know, that's great! Woo. What are the chances, like, I am I saw that and I was like, oh yeah, this is an album, first of all, I gotta mention the name yeah, of this, so and that, second of all, this is probably an album
3: nobody's ever heard of. That CD cover was great! Gri- like lime green, oh, yeah. it stood
2: out so much, and it said songs about fucking right on it, but it was censored on the cover yeah. so they could display it in music stores.
3: I had it, and I had so I had all my CDs out in my room except for like three or four that I put in my closet <laughs> so my mom wouldn't come in there and like like vacuum and go what the hell songs about fucking. So what I is kept this, that in Matthew? the closet, like right <laughs> two live crew. That's not like <laughs> put that in the back, put it in the back. <laughs> So uh, so so. Anywho, yeah. So there are also about hundred and fifty oh. cover versions of oh this song. Oh my god, there's so many covers from everyone from Gloria Gaynor mm-hmm. to Don Henley to Care Bears on Fire. Yes, to Weezer. Mm-hmm. However, the most well-known cover is by Lord. Uh, her yes. version. Her version was used in uh, one of the Hunger Games movies and was praised by Orthobel for reinventing the way the song sounded. He liked it so much that Tears for Fears performed her version of the song to launch their show every night on their most recent world tour.
4: Come to your life, there's no turning back, even while we sleep, you will find you. In on your best behavior turn your back on everybody
3: wants the world. so that's pretty high praise that is pretty high praise. You're like playing somebody else's version of your song to start your concert show.
4: mm yeah.
2: There's there's also a super fun version of this song by Scott Bradley uh, for the 2013 video game Bioshock Infinite. That Bioshock. sounds sounds like a version from the 19 yeah, hundreds. Oh yeah, I'm a huge <laughs> nerd. It's it's a it's a I don't know how to describe it. Uh, so I will link to it in the show notes if I remember to. What if did not, you say his
3: name was? Scott
2: Bradley. I'll uh, I'll from, remind uh, you for Bioshock Infinite. It's a, the best way I can describe it is. Uh, Picture like the music you would hear behind a silent movie, but it's uh, everybody wants to rule the world with lyrics.
3: Wait, like the crazy uh, piano and stuff. Yeah. Oh, no. yeah. I got to check that out.
2: It's fun. It's very fun.
3: So, uh, one last story about Ooh. this song before we move on. Uh, Joe Strummer from the Clash mm-hmm. uh, told this story. Uh, oh, he said, "This is a good story." He accosted Roland Orthobel in a restaurant, and he said, "You owe me five quid." And he said, "Why?" And he said, "You stole my lyric." The first line of Charlie Don't Surf from Sandinista, released in 1980, four years before Songs from the Big Chair, actually five years, uh, is Everybody Wants to Rule the World. According to Joe, Roland dug into his pocket, pulled out a fiver, and gave it to him right there. <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's such a good story. Right? I, hope, I honestly hope that story's true.
3: Me too. too. Like It's like, oh, here you go, here's five quid, now go, get the fuck yo. out of here. i know you're from the clash like the biggest one of the biggest punk bands of all time right Uh, here you just take this and you know shuffle off get out of there (laughs) you know what happens though mothers talk you do talk sometimes Uh, also
2: that's the name of the next song on this album what uh it was written in 1983 and was first publicly performed uh during the band's late 1983 tours so a little bit before this album
3: right it's the end of technical end of side one. Yes. And it goes out with a bang because it seems to be a blending of what was going on in the band musically. Uh, This was actually the first single from the record. Uh, It would go to number 14 in the UK, eventually chart in the US in 1986 at number 27. It was loathed by the songwriters. Mm -hmm. Uh, Orthobel has said that it sounded too commercial and the record company wanted to come out with their guns blazing. He was opposed. Record Company One. My feeling is that they felt uh, it was an experiment that went a little too far. And that's unfortunate because I actually love this song and I always have.
2: It's a very good song.
3: Whether it's the incredible bass line by Kurt Smith or the synth part that's really driving the song forward or all the industrial sound effects added to it, it is one of my favorites uh, of the band. Uh, it has a ton of energy, sounds like this. We can- So they all consider this song to be, quote, important to their development, yeah, but not one of their best efforts. And I guess that all depends on what you're going for. If you're trying to become a successful jazz pop band, then no, this is not it. But if you're trying to become a successful musical entity, then this kind of experimentation and change is exactly what you need to be trying. Yeah. And other than maybe one or two other parts on this record, it really gives the whole band a chance to shine as musicians, uh, especially the Rideout, which I didn't play. The Rideout lasts for like 45 seconds, yeah. and is musically just fantastic. They seem to hate some of the... oh. Uh, so I went to a ton of message boards mm-hmm. when I was researching this, and there's nothing but shade for this song. People seem to hate the way the vocals are treated. I like it. Yeah. They seem to hate some of the effects used. I think they're used smartly. I
2: think this is one of those hidden tracks. So maybe I just don't get it.
3: it, It's it's a very great
2: track that a lot of people overlook because they're like, meh, it's not one of the hits on this album. But I think you should go back and listen to it and give it a second chance. Yeah. I also think this track is amazing because it's very clearly influenced by other 80s bands and influenced other 80s bands. Every time I hear this, I think about Duran Duran's "Of You to a Kill. Uh, the theme song of oh. the James Bond movie of *You to a Kill*, which, funnily enough, we were no, talking, we're about, talking about earlier. That. It very much has that same kind of a da 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 sound to it. Oh, I didn't even think about that. Right, and then on top of that, uh, Orthobald describes uh, this as an unsuccessful attempt to mimic the sound of the Talking Heads. Uh, "Quote: The Oof. song stems from two ideas. One is something that mothers say to their children about pulling faces. They say the child will stay like that when their wind when the wind changes." Uh the other idea is inspired by the anti-nuclear cartoon book When the Wind Blows by Raymond Briggs. <laughs> I don't know quite what that quote had to do about the talking heads but they were combined together.
3: So well, yeah, they got life it. and wartime and all the the talking head stuff.
2: A lot yeah. of the talking head stuff was sort of anti-war I guess yeah. Yeah, but yeah. fascinating to me that so much of it was pure influences that this band that was Current and popular was influencing this, influencing this other band that was current and popular, and they were both building off of one another, and then they were re-influencing one another with what they had built off of. That's fascinating to me.
3: Maybe I just don't get it. You know, maybe I just maybe I'm looking for something else. Like, or they are, uh, other fans, quote unquote fans, are looking for something else. Could be because I think it's uh like not only this version, but the version they would release. You know, two years later that toned down a little bit of the electronical uh, electronic stuff. Mhm. I think they're fantastic songs. I think it's a great songs. This is really the first appearance of the parents thing, which is yeah. a throwback to the hurting their last album. It it starts to surface here. Um there's a lot of metaphors going on, but I think it's a I think it's a wonderful song. I actually I dig it.
2: I believe you're correct.
3: Uh and i oh. believe is the next song on the album. You keep doing that. You're <laughs> It's funny. You're to so witty. Me.
2: Side 2, <laughs> i take the names of the songs and i repeat them in a way that's funny. Yay for me.
3: You're very talented that
2: way. Thank you. I've spent years practicing.
3: Side 2 of the record begins with a song that lets everyone know where they want to head. So coming off the synth and industrial sounds of Mother's Talk, I Believe is straight up Jazz, yes, it is even listed as that under its genre on music sites. Hmm. So if you search this song, I believe, on iTunes or Spotify, it comes up as jazz, not pop. Mm-hmm. Comes as, even though it's on a pop record, it comes up as jazz. So this would be, uh, this would become the fifth single from this record. However, not in this form. During the tour for this record, they would record it live and release that version of the song, labeled as, I believe, quote, a soulful re-recording. Mm. And that peaked at number 23 in the UK, and unfortunately would not chart in the US. It's a beautiful song. It's so starkly different than the last one. Uh, it includes Will Gregory again on the sax, and it works here because it's jazz. There are no illusions to what this song actually is. It's jazz and the saxophone is perfect. And here's some of I Believe.
2: This is such a good palate cleanser for the start of the B-side of this album. And it was originally written, Orthoball wrote it with uh, Robert Wyatt in mind. Uh, And if you don't know, uh,
3: it's actually dedicated. Yeah, it was a gift uh, song. He was going to give it to him. Yeah, Yeah.
2: it's dedicated to Robert Wyatt if he's listening. In case you don't know, Robert Wyatt was a founding member of the influential uh, Canterbury Scene Band's uh, Soft Machine and Matching Moles.
3: Soft Machine's friggin' great. Oh,
2: they're fantastic. This dude Robert Wyatt for some reason his name had never clicked in my brain. He opened for like the Jimi Hendrix Experience. Yeah. He was somebody who was incredibly influential throughout the 60s and 70s in all of that psychedelic rock stuff. Um he was originally a kit drummer and a singer uh before at a party, a birthday party one night, uh he fell out of a fourth story window, you know, as you do after as you've been you drinking. Do. And uh, well, became paraplegic. His legs don't work any longer. Sad, obviously. But he has since said that that probably saved his life because he was he was contemporaries of uh, all the – why can't I think of his name all of a sudden? Keith Moon, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of the drummers and, and musicians of the 60s and 70s who were huge drug users, who were huge alcoholics, who were doing every substance known to mankind – and he was following that same path, and falling out of the window and becoming a paraplegic sent him down a completely different path. Definitely, he he stopped um, drumming for quite a while. Picked up a bunch of different instruments. Learned to drum again in a more jazz style without using his feet. And uh, he basically. Uh, Embarked on a 40-year-long solo career.
3: Yeah, incredibly talented musician. Super Top talented musician. Yep.
2: Had never heard of him, honestly, before this. And all of a sudden, it's like, oh, yeah, I should probably look this person up. Yeah. He's he's fantastic. Uh, and if you get a chance, Robert Wyatt, go look him up. But uh, other thing we definitely need to mention on this song, uh, Orzoball, uh, Orthoball, excuse me. It's okay. Orthoball shouts, William, at this <laughs> point in the
3: song. That would be the saxophone player? That would be. Will Gregory.
2: Known today as the uh, uh producer and composer for the uh, band Goldfrap. Gold Frap. Goldfrap. Frap. 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 But uh, uh at the time he was a saxophone player. Uh very well known uh session musician. Very talented.
3: Player. Might I point out Why to point out also some lovely triangle playing on this song, courtesy of bassist Kurt Smith. Ooh. Uh, The triangle doesn't get enough love, so I'd like to give it some right there.
2: Da-ding-ding. Da-ding-ding.
3: Lyrically, this is very much, again, about the primal scream therapy that figured so predominantly on their last record and made some appearances here. Uh, There's a line in the song that he sings... Quote, and I believe that if it's written in the stars, that's fine. I can't deny that I'm a Virgo, too. So I had to look up the relevance of that. Uh, The sign, this sign, the Virgo sign, is oriented towards contemplation and engagement with inner awareness. So that totally makes sense if Roland is on this therapy journey to deal with his trauma, inner awareness. So I love these little flourishes within songs that make you hunt a little bit. Yeah. I mean – that's a throwaway line, I think, to any, oh, he's just singing, he's a Virgo, too. Okay, but what does it mean? It means quite a bit. When he wrote it, there was some intentionality behind it. Yeah. And uh, hmm. there's a lot there. So, And while this song is certainly not my favorite on the record, it serves the purpose of bridging the gap between their old world and new world, sonically speaking. Uh, it's that seesaw that they're doing Yeah, between we're in new wave, we're, we want to do jazz, and then we got this little pop thing going on. But then it'd be broken.
2: It is a little broken, but uh, also broken is the next song on this album. Oh my
3: God, we did it again.
2: Shortest song on the entire album, with right. only two minutes and 39 seconds, but an incredibly powerful song.
3: Mostly a musical piece. This It, it serves as a, as a de facto opening section of the following song, Head Over Heels.
2: Yes, and it immediately separates itself from, uh, I believe, with this
3: fast drumbeat opening. Right. I love the next section of this record, because... Mostly, it is like borderline prog rock, kind of like progressive pop, if such a thing exists. Ooh, prog pop. Right? It utilizes the melody in places for the next song, and even some of the lyrics from the next song, but it's its own song. Yes. And that's so smartly crafted. The next song would become a massive international hit, and we'll talk about that shortly. So you only heard this song if you bought the record. Mm Mm-hmm. And you were given this whole piece, which was so much more than just a single. Uh, Here's a piece of broken right here.
2: It is such a if you don't expect this, and you're only familiar with the the hits from Tears for Fears, mm-hmm. you hear that little ding 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 ding, and
3: you're like, "Whoa! Now I know where this is going." Yeah, did it just go into the next song, or no? Not quite. The guitar solo on this song is played by Neil Taylor, mm-hmm. who also played the guitar solo on "Everybody who Wants to Rule the World." Uh, he's worked with numerous British artists like Morrissey and Howard Jones. Kyle's favorite, Howard Jones. Oh, my favorite! It's just so rich in its musical complexities you know lyrically i think like the rest of the record it has a natural progression of an adult the hurting dealt more with the trauma and blame laid at the feet of the parents and this album has a lot of motifs of an adult unable to cope with adulthood song is more or less about living in a constant state of worry like many of us do how do we pay the bills how do we get to work do we I mean, we just do it day in day out for the rest of all time? yes, fortunately, yes uh sadly
2: it, sadly, that is true.
3: It's such a great song, and truth be told, you know, it, it's an older song. It was written in nineteen eighty three actually included as a b side to the song "Pale Shelter," but then ended up having so many commonalities with the next song they decided to sandwich it in right there, and it works beautifully. it does, uh, and it leads into my very favorite. Tears for Fear songs of all time. Head over heels.
2: Slash broken, the live reprise.
3: Kyle, are you familiar with sonic dissonance and consonants? Ooh. Uh, you better explain it to me. So there are melodies and notes that do not sound good together, no matter who plays them or how. Okay. That's dissonance, right? And in the reverse, there are some combinations of of notes and melodies that everybody loves that everyone can relate to okay. they're pleasing to the ears and they make you feel good i give you my sonic consonants right here This is one of the most pleasing melodies I've ever heard.
2: I would agree with that. It's it's wonderful.
3: It makes me happy every time I hear it. It just makes me smile. I have no other explanation than that. From the first time I heard it when I was like 13 years old, I've just loved this song. The chorus and the la 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 could go on forever as far as I'm concerned. I never get tired of it when I hear it. Uh, this was the fifth single released from this record, peaked at number three in the U.S. Fairly romantic song on the surface. Yes. Uh, gets a little weird at the end as one of the lovers is dealing with some fear, probably Roland, most likely. But it is, it's is—it's a wonderful song and ends with a reprise of Broken yes. that was recorded live on the previous tour. Okay. Uh, I ahead. was going
2: to say, it's another one of those absolutely defining songs of the 1980s the third one on this single album yeah and it is it is something that just stands out as not only being of the 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 80s but also iconic of the 80s
3: huge Uh, i see the video in my head because i watched it so many times and i just i loved still so i use the past tense i love this song i still do
2: for some reason, there was a weird, uh, if you've heard this only on the radio, it's a much shorter song. They cut the oh, end yeah. off. Oh, yeah, they cut the end off. Yeah. And they do that with the, uh, all three of the hits on this album. Well, all of the songs. They all out. have
3: radio edits, yeah. Yeah,
2: um, but in some U.S. editions, the uh, live reprise of Broken was omitted from the end of this. The end of Head Over Heels led directly into Listen, which is the next song, which we'll get to in a minute. Uh, on the same U.S. editions, the full five-minute and nine-minute version of Mother's Talk was replaced with a three-minute and 53-second short version, uh, resulting in an overall runtime two minutes and 10 seconds shorter than the original right. album. Do people
3: not have the patience for that? That extra two I minutes and 10 not. seconds of my life is very important. Pro- probably not. People just don't. You know, I don't want to listen to something that long. Uh,
2: Sandy McLean again on backing vocals. Yeah. Annie McCraig. McCaig. McKagan on backing vocals and Marilyn Davis on vac- backing vocals. I can't say that right now. Backing vocals,
3: backing vocals, Andy Davis again on grand piano. There he is again. Get in touch with this Andy Davis. We want to know who you are. So this song gained uh, a resurgence in 2001 hmm. when it was placed prominently in the movie, uh, Danny, uh, sorry, Donnie Darko. Ah, yeah. Apparently the director of the movie designed, uh, the scene it was used in and choreography for the scene with this song in mind, the whole time so that's pretty cool
2: yeah uh and just in case you're curious to know where these this sort of breaks between head over heels and broken uh funny how time flies and it kind of does that weird fade out yeah that's the last lyric of head over heels before it goes into the live performance of
4: broken.
2: cut yeah okay
3: listen matthew what It's the closing track of the record. It's the closing track of the record, indeed. And it definitely sees the band stretching, trying to become very experimental. Yes. Uh, The song was written mostly by keyboardist Ian Stanley with lyrics by Roland, but it is definitely a band working things out collectively. Uh, There's not a lot of lyrics in the song, uh, but what is there is very telling. Yes. It's another Cold War stab at the superpowers, colored with this wonderfully Spanish section Uh, by roland Mm -hmm. Uh, it has a very world music vibe to it something that was just starting to get some love with peter gabriel and paul simon being at the forefront back then of pushing that movement forward uh sounds a bit like this or exactly like this chica, yeah,
2: no hay que preocuparse. Yes, in Spanish. Go on in English. Birthday girl, no need to worry. Okay, I don't know what that means. Nor Ber- do I. Birthday girl, no need to worry. <laughs> birthday girl, no need to worry. I don't.
3: That's weird. It's an odd choice. Very experimental. For for the Spanish. So yeah. the song has some amazing vocals on it by Marilyn Davis. Oh, yes, it does. It's huge voice. And unfortunately, I couldn't find anything else about her. Did you find anything? I did not. Too bad. She was uh, difficult, to,
2: difficult to research. Another one. Too common of a name. That's, I think, what the problem is. Well, no in, offense to Marilyn oh,
3: Davis. S- oh, no, see, and I said Marilyn Davis. I actually believe it's Marilyn David. Oh. See, I, I
2: have Marilyn Davis. See, and I yeah.
3: researched Marilyn Davis, and I ended up with Marilyn McCoo from Solid Gold. Okay. And that's not who it is. It's Marilyn David, and I could find nothing. Huh. I could double check that, but uh, Interesting. I'm pretty sure it's Marilyn David. But anyway, it's a powerful closer to this record. Yes, it is. Again, points the way to the next album. That album, The Seeds of Love, would not come out for another four years after this, as they grappled with success and world tours and indecision and label squabbles like normal. Yeah. After that record, Kurt Smith would leave for 15 years. And Orthobel would make two albums by himself as Tears for Fears. So they kind of went their separate ways. They came back together. They made one album in the 2000s. But this was the high watermark. Seeds of Love, is it's a great album. But if yeah. you're going in expecting songs from the big chair on Seeds of Love, you're not going to get it. It's different. But this is just one of the most iconic, legendary Landmark albums, yeah, of the eighties.
2: Like I said, three iconic eighties songs on one album. Yeah, I guarantee that those three songs: uh, "Head Over Heels," "Shout," and uh, uh what can't I think of the name of the other one all of a sudden? Uh,
3: "Everybody Wants Everybody, to rule Everybody the world? Wants
2: to Rule the World." You have a top ten or a top fifteen list of eighties songs,
3: they're going to be on. They're going to be on it for sure. That song's from the Big Chair. That's it. One of the biggest albums of the 80s, classic record that still holds up because the melodies are there. Yeah. You can get around some of the dated instrumentation, you know, the drum machines and the the lens and the, and the you know, the Fair Lights and whatever they're using. Yeah. Um, and the Cold War lyrics because the melodies are just so damn good.
2: And it's like you said, uh, this is very much a, a, it's a very jazz influenced album. Yeah. And I think that this is the perfect timing for us to release this album episode i agree because uh coming up uh should be either next friday or uh, a week from the wednesday after this episode is released uh depending upon our release schedule uh we are releasing a new podcast uh called audio judo does jazz right audio judo still going to be here still going to be released every other week Uh, audio judo does jazz is a completely different podcast uh matthew and i are going to be talking about our history of jazz what inspired us to listen to jazz, what you should listen to if you want to get interested in jazz. Yeah. Uh, It's going to be hopefully really good. Uh, Hopefully a lot of uh, both jazz history and some uh, good jazz music on there.
3: Right. Show consultant Chris, jazz spear guide Chris, is going to be uh, taking us through there. He's using the award-winning podcast kit from AK- AKG to record. Yes, he is. Over there while we record our parts over here. He's actually on the other side of the country from us. Yeah. And we're recording here. He gets the sweet mic, headphones, recording software, records his parts, and then sends up, sends them to us for editing. You don't have to be in the same place if you want to do this. Anyone can work with this gear, so make sure you check that out. Kyle, tell me about the Patreon stuff. We've got uh, two Patreon tiers. Uh, The first one is
2: called Front Row Seats. It's $5 a month, uh, and that tier includes two-day early access to episodes, a shout-out on future episodes as a loyal producer of the podcast, bonus mini-episodes called Judo Chops. Those are a lot of fun. They're like 10 to 15 minutes, and they're stuff we didn't want to cover in a regular episode, and occasionally bonus content, such as uh, unedited interviews, behind-the-scenes videos, and tiny tidbits that got cut out of the episodes, mostly due to our flatulence. And tasteful nudes? Yeah, occasionally. (laughs) uh the step up the next tier from that is the backstage pass it is $20 a month which is a big step up but you get some pretty good stuff uh, you get a very special personalized gift uh you also get the chance to co-host an audio judo episode after paying for this tier for a year uh, you get to pick the subject of the episode so we'll cover any album that you want and you get everything included in the previous tier that sounds good to me yeah so you can sign up uh, if you're interested at audiojudo.com uh and follow the link to our patreon or patreon.com forward slash audio judo perfect and you can get a hold of
3: us. You can, if you want to tell us what you think. At AudioJudo on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Facebook.com forward slash AudioJudo. Instagram is at Audio underscore, underscore judo. judo. And if you want to get a hold of us on email, it's info at AudioJudo.com. Yeah. We have episodes coming out from Oasis. Ugh, God,
2: damn oh, it. that's going to be a
3: fun one. Marillion, uh, Depeche Mode as well as the aforementioned Audio Judo Does Jazz podcast. Yes. Make sure you check that out next week, and we will see you back here in two weeks. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye, everybody. my god, I have to pee so bad. Huh? I have to pee so bad.
0: <laughs> Ladies, we know what we want from our birth control. But what about what's in our birth control? That's why I chose the 100% hormone-free Paragard intrauterine copper contraceptive. It's the only birth control that uses just one simple active ingredient to prevent pregnancy over 99% of the time, with no hormones and no daily routines. Paragard is a small IUD that prevents pregnancy for up to 10 years using copper. Ready to get what you want? Talk to your healthcare provider to see if Paragard could be right for you. Don't use if you have a pelvic infection including PID, get infections easily, certain cancers, Wilson's disease, or a copper allergy. Pregnancy is rare but can be life-threatening and cause infertility or loss of pregnancy. Paragard may attach to or go through the uterus. Tell your healthcare provider if you miss a period, have abdominal pain, or it comes out. At first, periods may become heavier and longer with spotting in between. It won't protect against HIV or STDs. For product information or to learn more, visit Paragard.com.